Today's guest recently sent me a copy of a story he'd written about the 2017 TransPAC. It's a sailing race, Trans-Pacific sailing race. He sailed in his brother's 50-foot boat and eight other middle-aged men. The race from California to Hawaii is harrowing and thrilling, to say the least. He truly captured the essence of the adventure, the drama, the despair. He completed his studies at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He's written and submitted to many, many newspapers, including the New Yorker Magazine, New York Times, Boston Globe, several Long Island newspapers, basically 15 years as a local reporter, 30 to 40 New York Times bylines. He's also a huge nature lover and a protectorate of the earth, and he happens to have been awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2013. We met as teens on the east end of the North Fork of Long Island, and our families have been friends ever since. I'm Jackie Tantillo, and I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, Tim Wacker. Welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Thank you, Jackie. It's great to be here. It's been a while that we've actually been in touch on a regular basis, so this is kind of a great way to to always catch up with old friends and explore who you are today versus when we were kind of crazy kids hanging out at the beach all the time and swimming and sailing in the beautiful area of Long Island that we grew up in. And then to share, of course, and explore the the impact that your mom had on your life, because she was a, a friend of mine and a, and a wonderful woman indeed. Please tell us your mom's name. Oh, sure. It's Veronica. Everyone called her Ronnie. And both your mom and dad, they were both journalists. Yes, they were. Uh, right from the get-go, they were. Um, they cut their teeth in the World War II era of journalism. Uh, truly, uh, a an era uh, of a profession that pretty much defined the profession. It was uh, my mom and dad met at a publication that went belly up, but then got revived again, and I think it might even still be publishing called the Brooklyn Eagle. And um, they were responsible for a lot of. Uh, coverage of activities and even promotional, if you propaganda, if you want to call it that, for World War II sentiments and, you know, uh, World War II-driven uh, coverage. My father had a, a bad foot, which she ended up getting, uh, disqualifying him for the Army, so that's what he was there. But my mother was uh, uh, quite active uh, in her early journalism career with the Brooklyn Eagle. Where did your mom hail from? Where's her family from? Oh, uh, they were, to my understanding, um, the bulk of her uh, childhood and early adult life were uh, spent in the northern tip of Manhattan um, in a neighborhood called Inwood, right off of Broadway, one block off of Broadway and two blocks from Dykeman Street on the very northern tip of Manhattan. Your dad, also a journalist, as we mentioned, Bob Wacker. Yes. So where did your dad hail from? He was from Brooklyn, Williamsburg mostly. He uh, grew up in a lot of the uh, established Jewish neighborhoods, and he had some wonderful stories about the experiences with the deeply religious uh, Jewish neighbors and so forth. Fun stuff. What age do you think you were when you kind of got this bug, or did it happen through osmosis to be a journalist? <laughs> I always wanted to be a writer, and I came about fulfilling that ambition through a 
circuitous, if not absurd route. Uh, I enjoyed uh, studying as well, and it was always a presumption. I think probably ingrained by my mother as much as anyone that we went to college. So that was never something that was up to discussion. And while I certainly had, didn't have grades that would justify that ambition, I uh, accepted it nonetheless. And it was in college that I realized how much I enjoyed writing. There was one uh, incident, uh, one uh, experience that uh, crystallized that was when I was in my second year of college and doing particularly poorly in every measurement of academia you can find, I was thinking, well, that's it for college for me. And there was a program there uh, at, the at the Southern College that I was going to at the time called Semester. And it was basically, you jumped on a boat and you went down to the Caribbean for two months and hung out and, you know, theoretically studied and uh, got a suntan. And I, my, mother, my mother insisted that I do this. And I, I was like, what are you? I just bombed out of my first two years of college, and now you want me to go on a boat and go cruising around the Caribbean. It made absolutely no sense. But it, it really was a, a life lesson. Um, Your gap year. Everyone does a gap year now, so that was your mom was very smart. She was way ahead of the curve. Everyone needs something. Well, the, the, back to uh, my getting the writing bug, she had insisted that I keep a journal of some sort uh, when I went down there. And that's when I really first experienced, you know, expressing myself through the written word. And um, that, uh, that stuck with me. I enjoyed that. You've you've done a lot of interesting things, let alone the sailing. Now you've also, you told me recently that you've hiked the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. Yes, that's my wife. She uh, had always wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail. I was still working at the last newspaper that I was at, the one where I owned a very small corner with the Pulitzer Prize. I must say that um, it was a, a team effort, and I was fortunate to be on the team. Nonetheless, she was dying to hike the Appalachian Trail. And while I was working at the paper, she undertook a 700-mile trip, which actually I think she hoped would be longer, but she got knocked off the because of an ankle uh, knee injury. But nonetheless, um, that was where she introduced me to the, the wonders of hiking. And while I professionally, I had to uh, focus on uh, work more than she did because she was uh, per diem as a lab technician, uh, nonetheless, uh, as she needed people to go hiking with her and could not get later on, they could not get in, uh, sufficient recruits, uh, she got me more and more involved. And yeah, I'd say I've done about a thousand miles of the Appalachian Trail, and uh, it's an experience that um, is wonderful, having grown up sailing on the water and being uh, a beach bum in many respects. As I'm sure you well know, uh, the allure of the trail is something that I think everybody should experience. It's a, uh, a single-minded purpose that uh, it just, you know, flushes out karmic congestion, as I like to say. So yes, the, the Appalachian Trail was, is, was and still is uh, uh, a passion of mine, thanks to Laura, my wife. In 2002, you contributed to a story while you were at the Eagle Tribune, which covers Massachusetts and part of southern New Hampshire. Uh, a piece called Tragedy on Ice. How did you get involved with the two other reporters that were writing that story? <laughs> That's a great question, and my editor always used to joke that I was her Pulitzer Prize-winning tryout. <laughs> I literally showed up the night before to try out for the Eagle Tribune because I had gone in and out of journalism, and my last uh, gig was uh, on Long Island, so 
Laura and I had moved to, uh, I guess, the Merrimack Valley of Massachusetts uh, in the northeast corner, and I was trying out for the Eagle Tribune to see if they would take me on as a uh, daily newspaper reporter. And the night before the first day of my tryout, this story flashed on the TV about four kids who had just drowned in the Merrimack River right in the heart of the Eagle Tribune coverage area. And I saw that story, and I said, oh, this is going to be an interesting tryout. And sure enough, when I got there the next morning, the place was a beehive, and uh, a beehive of activity, I should say. And my editor looked at me and just suddenly uh, said, go with her, and you know, start making, conducting interviews and gathering content. I guess that's what they call it now. It's content. Back then, it was news. The, I found myself in the living room of this desperately poor Hispanic family in the heart of downtown Lawrence, with a translator trying to make sense of the tragedy that had just unfolded in their lives. And if it wasn't such a tragedy, it would have been hilarious because uh, these people were you know, suffering through something that uh, no family should have to suffer through. And here I was, through a translator, trying to get the pulse of how the, you know, the disaster and how it was uh, unfolding in their lives. So... It was a weird situation, to say the least. Uh, but, yeah, I was the Pulitzer Prize winning tryout. Just so our listeners know, explain a little bit about the story. What happened? Oh, I'm happily. What made, made it the story was the fact that the four kids were at a um, boys and girls club of Lawrence. And Lawrence is a, a very poor, uh, almost entirely Hispanic, but formerly blue-collar mill town in the Merrimack River tragedy and follow up with the families uh, involved in the tragedy well I fortunately I, uh, the bulk of my reporting was uh, 
environmental, uh, not on that particular piece, but uh, I was hired as an environmental reporter for the Eagle Tribune, which I uh, greatly enjoyed and still it's a passion I possess. But no, I can't say I have gone back. I never enjoyed that aspect. As a matter of fact, I, I loathe that aspect of, you know, inviting myself into someone's living room who has just experienced tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard. Very hard. It's it's probably one of the most difficult things you can do, at least in my limited experience. But at the same time, I knew I was there, and I was, I'd be damned if I was going to make a half-hearted effort. And so I, and I, you also realize that when you're talking to these people, if they're willing to talk to you at all, that, you know, this is going to be uh, a reflection in the public light of their tragedy. And it's a huge responsibility, and you cannot... Uh, go into it half-heartedly. You're, you're there and you're going to do the very best job you possibly can because if you don't, you're just doing a disservice to the people who are already suffering through a tragedy. In addition to writing for the newspaper, you also have a blog that you write. NBN Communications is my company and it's just a one-man show. Uh, I've been very fortunate in that I have been doing the uh, overwhelming majority of my work for my brother Chris's company, Laser Beach, which is a software company. And that was a public relations responsibility, which I'm still fulfilling, but I hope to segue back into a uh, project of mine that actually gave NBN its name. It started out as nothing but news, and then it morphed into news by nature. But it's a, a website that it's a blog. I try to write about as many uh, different subjects as possible and try to write as authoritatively. Uh, justifiably or otherwise, on those subjects. And it's an outlet. Uh, I love doing it. I don't know how many people read it as yet, but I just broke 5,500 visitors last month, so I'm doing something right. And it's an opportunity that I think all people should take advantage of to put your thoughts down on paper and, you know, expound on the experiences of the world today. And my gosh, have we got some experiences today? So it's, a, it's more politically driven than it originally was. It was originally just an environmental website, but now it's uh, circumstances being what they are. I've uh, dipped a little deeper into politics and the circumstances of today. Google Tim Wacker, News by Nature, and you will get everything from popular wisdom or lack thereof. <laughs> Recycling news, global warming news, solar power news, alternative energy news, good news, bad news, it's all there. N is a Nancy, B is boy, N is a Nancy, news by nature. You're listening to Should Have Listened to My Mother. My guest is journalist Tim Wacker. We're trying to work our way through Tim's life a little bit to find out how he was shaped and formed. And your mom, Ronnie, as you mentioned earlier, was a had a huge impact in your life. Did your mom always work when you guys were growing up? Yeah, I shouldn't say always, because when you have five boys, there's just so much work you can do and still keep the household together. <laughs> We're going to get to that. Boys. We're going to get to that part of the five boys. <laughs> <laughs> five boys in a seven-year span. I don't, anyway, um, <laughs> yes, and, you know, to the point about the uh, dealing with tragedy, my father told me, and I, I didn't really fully appreciate this, but my mother was a specialist, just the same. I think they called her a... Uh, uh, Sobbing Sally or some term that was applied, you know, back in the 40s and 50s of journalism, uh, 1940s and 50s uh, uh, age of journalism, that she was a specialist in helping grieving people or, you know, interviewing grieving people. And I could see that she she had a real touch that um, enabled her to, uh, you know, 
be sensitive and at the same time get to the heart of the story. And uh, so, uh, really, not directly, but um, she instilled, in, uh, I, I think, through osmosis or some other means, an appreciation of what a responsibility it is to uh, talk to people who are uh, dealing with tragedy. And that was something that she apparently was a specialist in, although I, I never really discussed it with her in any way. My father told me that. I can still remember her voice and her cadence, and she was very specific with the words that she chose, and, and I just loved watching her face and her eyes, and she was just wonderful. I would talk to her <laughs> when I'd call the house to see if any of you guys were around. I'd wind up hanging out on the phone with her for like 20 minutes, so it was an absolute joy to get to know her. Well, thank you. Your mom have journalism in her family, or writers? No, not not at all. Um, they came from uh, desperately poor uh, families. Um, my grandfather was a, a stubborn German, and um, he uh, that stubbornness uh, ended up, I think, um, making life more difficult for my mom and uh, her two brothers than it necessarily needed to be. You know, just never accept any kind of assistance or help, always had to do things his own way. And um, so she was raised, I don't know how she ended up getting interested in journalism or what, uh, how she found herself there. Um, it's a, uh, I wish she was a city college, I know that, a city college in Manhattan. And um, the, the road that took her to the Brooklyn Eagle was anyone's guess. I, I wish I had asked her those questions when I was younger. Maybe she just needed to express herself if she had that rigidity in the home. Maybe she needed an outlet, right? And she just started to write. That could well have been it. Um, it's interesting, and uh, and it's an interesting aspect of my mom. She never talked about herself very much at all, uh, I think, which is you know standard fare for uh, people of that era there. They were much more focused on doing their job, and it was a reflection of growing up in the Depression. Uh, they, she was a child of the Depression. Can you give me a couple of words that describe her? One of the things that made the greatest impression upon my mom, uh, upon me by my mom, was um, just her uh, unfailing generosity. And he, you know, if we were serving dinner and we had five hamburgers and three people showed up. They'd sit down and share our hamburgers. She was always, you know, open door policy. Anybody come on in, uh, the more the merrier. And um, it usually was the merrier. That's the the, the amazing thing and the the lesson that I took from all of that is that you know it's it's always better to share and you know have more people involved than less. And so the generosity, um, her uh, really one of her strongest characteristics was um, she just didn't share her own suffering whatsoever. Whatever was going on in her life and whatever difficulties she was encountering, um, you never heard about it. It was always something that she kept to herself. And even when she uh, had liver cancer, it, we had to pry out of her the, uh, the facts that uh, led uh, my wife, Laura, to realize that my mom was very sick. And uh, we immediately, you know, drove down there and discovered just how sick. So, you know, it, and again, that may be a reflection of the generation. It may, uh, I think it's also a, a reflection of her. Generous to a fault, never burdened others with her difficulties, and uh, really just determined to help 
uh, situations and circumstances that she felt needed it. And that was uh, a big part of her environmental activism. And that and coming out to the North Fork of Long Island, where there were, it was just such a beautiful place. And she never, having lived uh, the majority of her young life uh, in a, on the fifth floor of a five-story walk-up, um, she to suddenly find herself on a in a house with 170 feet of bayfront. It was a transition that uh, she just never, as she said often, just never imagined growing up that she would be in a house such as that, and you know, in circumstances such as that. So I think that the appreciation of nature might well have evolved to a large extent in that and from uh, that house and the North Fork. But she was always, um, <clears throat> she did some crazy things when we were younger. Uh, when we were still in New Jersey, she felt so badly for people, uh, I think it were Brazilians was the cause that had caught her eye. That, and, you know, here we were enjoying, my father did well in public relations and always managed to keep us in uh, cheerios and such, that she felt that, you know, other people are suffering when we've got it so good. We've got to help other people who are suffering. And <laughs> it was my it was typical of my mom. Uh, her intentions were uh, more uh, honorable than perhaps her execution. She went out and figured she would get a great big box of balloons to send down to these starving people in uh, Brazil to help cheer up their holiday. And so she sent them a great big box of balloons, and she got a letter back saying, thank you very much for the balloons. Do you think next time you can send cash or something to that effect? <laughs> and <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you've, you've got to no. you've got to be editing this conversation <laughs> a little more than because I'm kidding. Yeah. But, I, you know, my mom was a, a dear lady, and that was the sort of well-meaning uh, that, that those things, those lessons were not lost on any of us, uh, my brothers or I. We, you know, we realized that Helping people is something that you do, uh, you just do. Um, and that was a lesson instilled in us from, by her. There's five boys within seven years. There's Jim, Chris, John, you, and Tom. That's correct. And, and I know of many capers that you guys <laughs> did throughout your lives, but there's the, the trip that you guys, all of you jumped into a van and you drove to Alaska one summer. That was hilarious. And that... Uh, Boy, you really got me going. Um, the yes, and uh, that I discovered later on was my mom's brainchild, um, and it gets to the the absolutely um, some might say reckless, others might say adventurous nature that she uh, embodied. My father had a wonderful job. I believe he was head of public relations, if not very senior uh, in the in the. Uh, Public Relations Department at Merck Sharp and Dome in New Jersey, and this is a big job, and he didn't like it very much, and I can't imagine anybody liking it very much, but nonetheless, I guess they found themselves in the summer of 68, kind of scratching their heads saying, where do we go from here, and somehow the idea came up, hey, let's jump in a car and drive to Alaska, 1968, and... Um, my mother was the one who pushed the idea, apparently. And, uh, she was the one who said, yeah, let's do this. This is but My father quit his job with uh, a family of six dependent on him, and we jumped in the car and drove to Alaska with no, <laughs> with, oh no guarantee, with no guarantee of uh, 
you know, a job when he came back. I mean, it just and it was my, you know, you would think the mother would be the one staunchly adverse to this idea, and she was not. She was the one who was pushing it. What? And you slept in the van, or did you stop along the no, way? No, we had a, we had. Um, you don't want to get me started on that trip because I, there are stories that come <laughs> okay. that they last forever. But the, uh, to to summarize it, we had two different tents: uh, one for my mother and my father, and the other tent for those five boys. And we it, uh, rained pretty much the entire trip up there. But you know, uh, so many memories; it's hard to describe. And once again, my mother's uh, you know insight as to how important those memories are to a sixty-year-old man looking back on them, uh, you know. Is, gives an insight into who she was. Who was the, more the disciplinarian, your mom or your dad? Or neither? <sighs> they both weren't real good at it. Um, the My brothers... <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but to try to answer your question, obviously my mother was a disciplinarian because my father was always off at work. But, you know, we always knew that... Uh, you could get away with murder. Yeah, it was five against one. She didn't stand a chance. So, you know, but yeah, my mother was a disciplinarian, but she would say, if you don't do such and such and such, your father's going to do such and such and such. And so she always, you know, dad was the enforcer. My mother was uh, administration in that matter. I can't even imagine the five boys, how much fun you had. That's pretty great. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yes, it was pretty funny. Did uh, your mom cook a lot? Later on, I think, oh boy, um, there were times when, you know, given my, both my parents' predilection for uh, just abandoning uh, well-paying careers and successful families, there were times when we didn't have a whole lot of money, particularly out of Long Island. You would think we lived in this magnificent uh, property. The house itself was a dump, but the house was, uh, the property was magnificent. And there were times when making ends meet was a bit of a trick, and my mom used to make these, uh, drums of lentil soup, which, you know, you could get to put together for about three or four cents a serving. And uh, we would eat that for, oh, you know, a couple of months at a stretch. And the uh, So she was good cooking <laughs> that she could make... She, she was good cooking that she could make uh, make ends meet. But later on, uh, as, you know, uh, things got a little more settled and uh, the kids moved on, she was an extraordinary cook. Uh, her ability to make a delicious, healthy meal was something that had to be seen. It was, although it's funny, my father always complained bitterly that you know all this health food was no good. But yeah, she was great, and she could put on Thanksgiving like nobody's business. Uh, she would have three or four, at least three or four different vegetable dishes, not to mention pies. And so yeah, she was an extraordinary cook. And did you guys ever do stuff with her in the house like that, domestic stuff? Or were you just off running around doing your thing? No, we were all, yeah, we were all, I mean, it's a good question, and I I wish I had an answer for you right away. Um, as much as anything, she, she was not the, the domestic that I'm painting her to be, and there were we used to get ribbed by the our friends who would come over to the house uh, who would remark on how sloppy the house was. And uh, first of all, that's a reflection of having five boys who are slobs, but that's also having a mother who, uh, at that time, as soon as she could, she was working at the Suffolk Times, which was the local paper out there. And in no small measure, because uh, we moved out there without 
any real income. For uh, a couple of years there, we were desperately poor. And so she took a job. She got paid, believe it or not, 12 cents an inch for copy. For first it was at the News Review, and then she moved to the uh, Suffolk Times. But, I mean, we're talking writing entire stories for a couple of bucks each. I mean, I guess that may be an exaggeration, but uh, she worked very hard and got paid very little. But, you know, it, it put a, a few extra bucks on the table, and um, that uh, was where she spent a great deal of her uh, time after we had moved back to the East End. But she loved it. She loved the writing. She enjoyed it very much. Yes, yeah, she did. She clearly did. And uh, she loved also being involved. Um, one of the things that uh, stands out to me in her involvement, first, obviously, through the newspaper, when she broke some great stories, when uh, Loco wanted to... Um, build a nuclear power plant, excuse me, a coal-fired power plant in Jamesport. She was the one who first got a hold of the story, and it, it mushroomed into a disaster that Loco, that was the electric utility at the time, ended up having to shelve, and it was a real black eye for them. But yes, she enjoyed it very much, and um, she enjoyed being able to write about the causes that was dear to her uh, very much. She was very involved in environmentalism and the local politics, right? She was passionate about those, too. Yes, yes. And I would say, in many respects, growing up and getting older and becoming a teenager and then a a young man working out there and working in construction a lot, she was not making a lot of friends with, uh, at least among my circles, uh, with her uh, environmental activism. She angered a lot of people and because she was fighting for causes that were directly impacting the uh, pocketbooks of developers and others with uh, vested interests in building houses out there. It's still the same issue today. We're trying to protect the environment, especially out there because it's so fragile. And yeah. you're going to piss people off <laughs> that are trying to make the money. Yes. <laughs> so. yes. And there was one thing that she did in particular that I want to promote for lack of a better word, she and Paul Stoutenberg immediately got on the bandwagon. We, we had been out there maybe a year and a half to two years, and there was a, a, a procedure whereby you would backfill wetlands and bulkhead the wetlands and build homes on it, and bingo, you had a beautiful waterfront home where there once was a marsh. And I don't know how Paul recruited her to this task, but he definitely recruited the right person because my mother was, she was handing us petitions. I was in fifth grade circulating a petition around in my classroom, gathering signatures to stop backfilling wetlands in South Old Town, and it worked. Uh, early on, those uh, the town passed a law, and you can no longer backfill wetlands. And to really understand the impact of that, just go spend some time in the Jersey Shore, and you see how much marshland was backfilled. And the North Fork, that, that was stopped. And it was a uh, vital contribution uh, or backstop to ensuring the health of the Peconic Estuary out there. She, that, that project was one of the first things that she undertook. She was successful. There were many others after that, but that was a huge one. And uh, that, that, among other things, uh, made an impression upon me, and I'm sure my brothers as well, as to how important it is to protect the environment. Now, your mom was the 2005 Suffolk Times Person of the Year. Yes, one of the few, one of the few interviews that I have sat for uh, involved that, uh, and it was posthumous, sadly. Uh, but it was in recognition of the wetlands ordinance that she managed to pass. She got two acres zoning passed in South Old Town. She got 
she got a master plan developed in Southold Town. She was instrumental with my father to getting the United Southold ticket uh, elected that year. I forgot what year that was, but there were. She was very, very active and very, very effective. Uh, she was uh, led the charge in protecting uh, Robbins Island. I shouldn't say led the charge. There were a lot of folks involved in these things, but she was uh, uh, very much involved. Uh, getting Robbins Island preserved, um, and then also Fort Courtyard preserved, the Northwood Environmental Council, which I don't even know if it's an organization. I think it's been um, uh, merged with the group for the East End, but that was really the first East End environmental organization looking out for the uh, ecological concerns out there. And she was the first paid uh, executive director, whatever the title was at the time, uh, because she was putting in so much work, and the, the pay was a joke, but uh, she said, look, if I'm going to be working this hard. Uh, so she she lent a sense of seriousness to the environmental uh, efforts out there. Bravo, Ronnie. Did your mom ever give you personal and or professional advice? That's a, a regret on my part. I always deferred to my dad because he was more the professional. He had this serious gig at Newsday, and uh, he. Uh, so I, I wish I had asked my mom more for her input. I mean, she obviously was. I submitted so much stuff that was truly awful to both of them to read, and dying to hear their response. But it was always my dad who I deferred to, and you know, would immediately ask, you know, Dad, what did you think? And then that is a, a regret on my part. I wish I had sought out my mom's counsel more than I did. But yeah, I would, you know, certainly I, I would take advantage of uh, what she had to say. Also, I try to incorporate her thoughts and ideas. She was more of a, uh, you know, making an impression on how you live your life rather than the specific guidance in pursuing your career. She showed by example. Exactly. Thank you. Did she give marital advice? Yes, she did. She might have been more than anybody else responsible for, um, you know, greasing the skids, so to speak. That's a apt term. Um, I remember because I and I think in uh, in keeping with the theme of uh, your podcast, she always wanted me to settle down. I think earlier than I did. I was always just having way too much fun living life to actually start getting serious about it. And I think that was a disappointment on her part. And I'm still not sure if I should have, you know, taken her um, ambitions for me more seriously. But um, she, I, I was asked, I did ask her on that. And she said, well, you know, um, it's a good idea settling down and uh, you may well find it's a wonderful thing. So hearing that from her, and I guess she made... My father was good uh, for career advice, but my mom, my mom was good for life advice. And when she, when I heard that from her, I was like, "Damn, maybe I, maybe I should start thinking about this marriage stuff." And um, her uh, remarks to me were, uh, and it also meant that she was signing off on Laura, but she thought Laura was a good person that should be married. So I actually didn't find out that your mom had passed until a couple of months after she had died. And then when I heard the story of what happened, that she hadn't told you guys anything, she hadn't said a word to you, that must no. have been pretty shocking. It was, and the circumstance by which it came about was um, 
it was tragic for us because it was so sudden. The two of them were just really hitting their elderly stride, and we figured that both of them, if anything, my father would die before my mother. But long story short, I was talking to her on the phone, and she kept talking about this itch, and I thought when Laura and I were down there the week before, she had a yellowish tinge to her. So nonetheless, you know, when I told Laura about this, and Laura was a lab technician who... Uh, was aware of, you know, a lot more medical facts than I certainly was. And she said, oh, your mom's dying. we got to get down there right away. And I think it's a penchant among wives, or at least uh, certainly among many that I've encountered, that you tend to get fly off the handle a little earlier than you need to. So I looked at Lauren and I said, no, she's, fine. she's dying. She's not dying. And she said, we got to go there right now. And, yeah, we hopped in the car and drove down there and discovered that what, Someone had diagnosed as some sort of a the skin itch or something turned out to be a uh, liver failure, and um, she had a gripping tumor right in the middle of her liver. And um, boy, to uh, characterize my mom, uh, she was uh, on the gurney in the uh, outside the emergency room in um, Sloan Kettering, and uh, you know the latest bout of bad news had just uh, settled in, and she looked at me and said, "Oh well." Into each life, some rain must follow. And it just, you know, it, it even hits me today that that was how she uh, responded to uh, this just unrelenting stream of the worst news you can get. Uh, it was just pragmatic and, oh well. And uh, that, uh, I think, sums up certainly one of her uh, many uh, characteristics well. And it really is a process. You know, you, you move on, and uh, I can now talk about this pretty much without tearing up or anything else. And uh, just appreciative of the wonderful life that she led. And, you know, I'm appreciative of this interview for having an opportunity to talk, you know, at length about uh, my mom. It's a, a great thing that you've got, Jackie. It's taken me years to come up with this whole idea, but I've saved. My mom used to write to me in college, and I saved all of those letters. I said, oh, one really? day... I'm going to do something with these letters because I don't know if I ever have children wow. or a family. I don't know if I'm going to be able to instill this optimism and courage and passion mm -hmm. as she did. And I'm going to start incorporating the letters into these podcasts to share all of that that power of positive thinking and Norman Vincent Peale, <laughs> her passion for life. Tim Wacker, thank you so much. Keep writing, please, because you're really good at it. you got to keep us all instilled and alive and aware. <laughs> well, from, from your lips to God's ears, uh, thank you very much. I, I greatly enjoyed it, Jackie. It's a, a wonderful project. I'm sure it's going to be excellent. I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother.